0: Well, we have reached a significant milestone in our church. It was March 2015 when we began our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so now that we've reached April 2016, we officially are celebrating one year of completed study. So that's a, that's a blessing. It just seems like it's gone so, so fast. And we covered six chapters in a, a year's time. And so if we stay on the same pace, which has been a good steady pace, we should finish uh, the Gospel of Mark sometime in the next 18 months or so, Lord willing. Uh, Today we're going to finish studying Mark chapter 6 and also conclude a sermon series called Battling Unbelief. To some degree, the Lord Jesus Christ battled unbelief his entire earthly ministry. But the last two passages that we've studied and the third one that we're going to study today at the end of Mark chapter 6, have addressed the heart of unbelief found solely in his 12 disciples. In order for them to fulfill their apostolic calling and ministry, they would need to be great men of faith. And with the exception of Judas Iscariot, they would be. But this just didn't happen magically overnight. It took... The Lord investing in their lives and discipling them day after day, week after week, month after month, grooming them and strengthening them in their faith to help them trust the Lord completely for all that they would need. It's fair to say when the disciples first started that their faith was weak or or fragile at best like someone today who is new to Christ, so their heart might be filled with tremendous zeal. There's much to learn about the Lord as we follow him and as he grows us and stretches our faith for future ministry. Spiritually, Christ helps believers battle their unbelief by growing their faith in their areas of spiritual weakness and vulnerability. The Apostle Paul had expressed it this way when he was writing to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6. He he said, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day the Lord returns. Christ is faithful to grow every believer. And when it comes to his first disciples, in the last three passages of Mark chapter 6, the Lord is addressing their unbelief and strengthening their faith by displaying his omnipotence in three different ways. The doctrine of of omnipotence means that God is able to fulfill his holy will. And it's if we break it down in the Latin, it, it's actually omni in Latin, which means all, and potens, which is the root, which means potent or powerful. So when we talk about God being all-powerful, we're talking about him being all-powerful in the sense that he can carry out his holy will. Christ's omnipotence also points to his deity, which is also purposed in these passages. There is only one who is omnipotent, and it is the triune God of Scripture. Our series began with the miracle of the loaves, where Jesus featured his omnipotence over creation. As he literally created enough food for 25,000 people. And though he started with a couple of fish and, and loaves, right? It was uh, just to, to, to recognize just even the inadequate contribution that, that was there. He was setting up his lesson. He basically began creating ex nihilo, right? Out of nothing, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ creating the world. In this miracle, Jesus strengthened their faith in ours by helping us see that our Lord provides in life and in ministry. Next, Jesus strengthened their faith in ours by exercising his omnipotence over nature as he literally walked on the water and he enabled Peter to also do the same, even though only for a moment, right? He also calmed the stormy seas, And he did this for the second time for his disciples. At the end of Mark chapter 4, he did it by simply saying, hush, be still, he did it with a word, right? And then in this account in Mark chapter 6, he doesn't say a thing. It's just his presence as he steps into the boat, identifying with the disciples and their circumstances. We got to study that last week. Well, how will Jesus exercise his omnipotence today? How does this third consecutive passage that we're going to look at complete the trifecta? How will it battle the unbelief of his disciples and grow their faith and ours as we continue our study? Let's tackle the text to find out by reading it together. Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56 from the New American Standard reads as follows. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. and when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick, to place to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him. And they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Well, you can see in your bulletin, the title of our message is His Healing Power Unleashed. And the way that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to display his omnipotence today is by exercising it over the physical realm of disease and also the spiritual realm of depravity. It says in our sermon proposition that we're going to see three stages. And I outlined this passage so that we could actually see it in stages. Three stages as our Lord unleashes his incredible healing power so that his disciples will cultivate a greater faith. And of course, we're disciples as well. And so as we look at this passage, as we study it together, it is going to help us and it should help us to cultivate greater faith in Christ as well the first stage that we see is his healing power recognized verses 53 and 54 say it this way and I'll add a little commentary as we read them again when they had crossed over they came to the land at Gennesaret we're going to talk a little bit about the route that the disciples took here in just a moment I'm actually going to show you a map and it says that they moored to shore, that they, they anchored. Um, they came into the harbor and they anchored, is what that means. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, think about it. There was no internet. There was no Facebook. There weren't pictures that were being posted all the time of people. There were no printed materials. There weren't cameras. There weren't photographs. How in the world would they know him? They knew him from his ministry. They recognized his face and his voice from his ministry. And Gennesaret was the name of the town as well as the region, which was densely populated. The region was a fertile plain three miles long by a mile wide on the west shore of the lake between Capernaum and Tiberias. And I thought it would be good to show you a map so that you can gain a sense. So we're going to go ahead and pull one up for you. And I want you to be able to see kind of the travel route that the disciples experienced in the last 48 hours in ministry. It begins with the miracle of the loaves that took place right there on the left-hand side where it says the desert place. And it wasn't so much a desert place as it was a deserted place. Remember, they sat on the grass right? It wasn't desert, but it was a remote location. And so that's where they are. Jesus miraculously fed the 20 to 25,000 people right at that place, okay? In John 6.15, we learned that the people had this plan that they were going to come take Jesus by force to make him their king, and so Jesus does what? He shepherds his disciples to the boat. He has them get on the boat right in between the middle of those red arrows, right approximately in that place. And he sends them north to Bethsaida. So they leave. Jesus retreats to a hill that's probably right about where that diamond is, right beneath the, the, the desert place. Uh, He's, he's on a hill, he's able to watch over them, and he's praying for them, as we saw last week. And they encounter violent winds that are coming down from the northeast, which is common on the Sea of Galilee. There's actually a name for them. They call them Sharkia in Aramaic, and that's true even to this day, the, northeasters that would, the northeastern winds that would come down um, the reason why they called them Sharkia, because they were much like sharks. They were, they were uh, dangerous winds and potentially even deadly. They blew with such force. And our Lord saw them, and he does what? We, he began walking on the water as they were heading into this strong wind. And so you see that top red arrow. They were going north, and they were heading into that wind. Jesus probably stepped off onto the water and started walking in between the banks uh, of, of where they were headed north and um, was able, they were able to see him. And we know what happens in the story because we studied it last Sunday. What is good to understand is just how strong the winds were that were blowing on the boat because it took them off course and they don't end up anywhere near Bethsaida. Okay? It appears that the Lord used Bethsaida with a specific purpose because he knew that they were going to head into the, 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 the Sharkia. He knew that they were going to hit those storms, right? And they, they drift off course. And I, I couldn't help but think of Proverbs sixteen nine: The mind of a man plans his way, and the Lord directs his steps. This is a, a, a good proverbial description of what's taking place. And not only can the Lord direct our steps, but he can direct our sails, he can direct our oars in the boat. That's exactly what he does. And they end up not anywhere near Bethsaida, but they end up probably getting blown to the south, and then they end up coming in for ministry in Gennesaret. And so this is, is all according to the Lord's plan as he directed their steps to Gennesaret, And this is where he would unleash his healing power. Now that we have a geographical picture in mind, let's continue. Our Lord's reputation precedes him, and the people of Gennesaret recognize him as the one who heals. His disciples now are well aware of the Lord's miraculous powers. They've witnessed thousands of miracles at this point. One commentator adds... This scene makes clear that out of all the facets of Jesus' ministry, preaching, teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes, the people identified him first as a healer. The Greek word translated recognized at the end of verse 54 can also mean to know. And this is why some translations, perhaps your, your English translation says, the people knew him. What's interesting is that the the uh, treasury of scripture knowledge cross references this verse with Psalm nine, verse ten, which says, "And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you." What a beautiful and encouraging verse for us. And though it's true that many people in the crowd did seek the Lord under false pretenses, it is important to keep in mind that there were those who were responding in genuine faith and trusting in him for salvation. Those who would reflect the heart of Psalm 91, verses 14 and 16 through 16, where the Lord says, this is another cross-reference, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. The context of Psalm 91 is is general in in the sense it's speaking to everyone Who puts their trust in the Lord? As the Lord prepared his disciples for future ministry, they would need to recognize that the healing power of Christ not only ministered to the physical needs of the people, but to man's greatest need a Savior who could rescue, deliver, and heal them spiritually. And you're a well taught bunch. So you you know that the, the purpose of Jesus performing his miracles was to authenticate who he was in his person and work. It identified him as Messiah. And then as the disciples would follow suit in ministry, it would authenticate them as his messengers, as his apostles, his sent ones, and it would also validate the authority of their message Unlike Jesus, they wouldn't have the ability to look into the hearts of people and to discern whose faith was genuine and whose wasn't. But this is important that that, that the disciples see that there were those that, that God was drawing to himself and helping them to see that there were those who would be responding in faith, genuinely. In the first stage, we see his healing power recognized. And then the second stage, we see his healing power pursued. Look at verses 55 and 56. God's word says, And the people ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Remember, I previously mentioned that Gennesaret was a reason. Can we pull that map up just one more time? I was going to, so show you it was three miles long. Um, you can see that, that line that's going right behind the, the black dot, right? And so uh, the one mile marker, Right up there is that's that's the the length of of a mile and it would come off the picture just a little bit but it would be basically that that. um and i have a pointer and hubie i i I forgot to grab it it's okay i don't need it um if if you go back just beyond that white line to where it looks like the the mountains start that's that's the space right there and so it was this rich, um, region that Josephus, uh, basically even talks about of just the, the, the blessing of this, of this area. Okay. Well, verse 55 says that they ran about the whole country. And so I was just sharing this because it wasn't a whole country. It's better translated region as it is in the ESV, I believe. The New American Standard says country. Whenever they entered villages, cities, or fields in that region, they were laying the sick out in the open, giving them access to Jesus. Mark uses two different Greek words that are translated sick to cover a broad spectrum of illnesses. Here being sick in this passage can be understood synonymously with any infirmity, illness, plague, or pestilence that existed at that time. It could also include someone who was injured or incapacitated, someone who is, is near death, right? We saw that just with Jairus' daughter, who actually ended up dying before uh, the Lord even got there, and he was still able to, to raise her from the dead. We've actually witnessed a number of Jesus' healing miracles uh, in the opening six chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And during my study this week, I came across an interesting description of the biblical concept of disease. It was found in B.E.B., the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, and and I wanted to share it with you. It's a a lengthy quote, but I figured if I put it up, you can also track track along as I read it. It says this, During the time the Bible was written, people did not have a detailed concept of anatomy or of how the specific organs of the body function. Disease was thought of as abnormal, something that limits one's ability to function with strength and vitality. The Hebrew word translated sickness as a noun means to be weak in its cognate verb form. The ill man by the pool of Bethesda is described as being impotent in John 5, 7, 7, being unable to get around by himself. Additional insight into the concept of disease can be obtained by looking at what the Bible says about health. To be healthy means to be whole, and to be healed means to be restored to wholeness. Then he references Matthew 12, 13, which is the account of the man with the shriveled hand, where the Lord Jesus Christ heals him and and asks him to stretch out his hand, and he makes it whole again. He makes it healthy, restored Central to this idea of health is the concept that a person exists as a unit, one single person, but has several parts. Each part or member has a specific function and all must work together in concert with the other parts. When Paul describes how a group of believers should function, he utilizes this concept of the healthy human body in cross-references 1 Corinthians 12. Paul perceptively points out and the smaller hidden parts of the body are more vital to life and health than some of the larger, more obvious members. And here's what I wanted to highlight because it, it sheds light on our, our, our study today. But the biblical concept of health does not stop with properly functioning physical parts. The key to health for a person is right relationships with God, oneself, and with others. Jesus taught that one's relationship with God was more important than having eyesight, referencing Matthew 5, 29. He also taught his disciples not to fear those who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can send people to hell, in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. God's word clearly places greater value on a person's spiritual condition than on a physical or mental condition in evaluating the person's overall wholeness of health." End quote. Thank you for following along and enduring that quote with me. But but it's so true, and I share this because it serves as a good reminder for you and I that we need to put greater emphasis on spiritual healing in our walks with the Lord rather than the physical and temporal matters. It's been my experience that even within Christian circles, sometimes our conversations get so caught up in in temporal matters. We we talk about even the how are you is, is it completely disconnected and and, and and oftentimes has no spiritual relevance. And again I'm sharing my experience. Perhaps it's different for you. But I I believe that we can make our discipleship interactions more meaningful and intentional. By asking someone, how is your soul? How, what, what is the greatest spiritual burden that your heart is carrying right now? How can I minister to you? Right? And this is relevant to our point because his healing power should have us focused on spiritual healing before physical matters. And if we're not careful we can become conditioned to praying for colds and coughs instead of gospel opportunities and deeper discipleship relationships. And I want to make sure that you hear me because I'm not saying not to pray for those things. And we pray for sickness all the time for those in our church. Right? We, we need the Lord's physical protection. We see examples of David even crying out for it. But as it relates to Spiritual healing in us having a mindset that prioritizes the spiritual needs of not only those within the body and the healing that we need, even within sometimes the broken relationships that can exist within the walls of the church, but also the spiritual healing that's needed out there in a world filled with broken relationships, filled with people who have no spiritual understanding. And so do you see how one carries greater Eternal significance? It does. Well, back to our passage. The people are bringing those who are suffering and sick to Jesus, and they're trying to touch Jesus. And we've seen this before when we studied uh, the account back in Mark chapter 3. Mark 3.10 says, For he healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And here at Gennesaret, not only are the afflicted pressing in, but people are bringing them to Jesus on pallets. Just a little clarification here, too. Most of us, if you're like me, you're conditioned when you you think of pallets, you think of wood pallets in a forklift, right? And it wasn't, you know, they weren't going around like at Sam's and Costco, picking up the sick and beep, 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 going in and dropping them off at the marketplace. These were... These were cots. They they were mattresses that basically functioned like stretchers so that they could carry the sick. Now, we shouldn't assume that everyone who pursued Jesus to be healed physically lacked a spiritual motive. And case in point comes in what we studied in the last chapter in Mark 5, the hemorrhaging woman who sought the Lord in faith. You may recall even how her faith how it was used to impact Jairus and the circumstances that were related to his daughter. You may also recall the hemorrhaging woman's desperation to reach Jesus in Mark five twenty-eight. You remember what she said? Verse 28. If I just touch his garments, I will get well. If I can just touch his garments, I'll get well. I'll be restored. In a very interesting parallel in our passage today, as we see his healing power pursued, the middle of verse 56 says that they were imploring him, literally begging him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And this encouraged me greatly in my study. Could they, could it be, you know, they, they've heard him. They recognize him, right? So they've heard the messages preached. They've heard the kingdom, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed, right? And here Jesus is back again. And, and he's ministering to those in great need. But we need to see with clarity. If you don't know Christ, everyone suffers from the greatest need possible, Everyone, could it be that they were responding in genuine faith? Well, only the Lord knows. And we'll see more evidence of potential faith in our last stage. But let's cover one more thing before we we move on. It's been suggested that the Lord Jesus Christ was wearing um, tassels, which uh, devout Jews would have been prescribed to wear, uh, during that time. And you can see this in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. And it, it was a reminder that they would be faithful to God's commands. But when I went and actually looked up the passages, if you go to Numbers 15, uh, verses 38 through 40, it says that these tassels were a reminder for the sons of Israel to remember God's commands And not to play the harlot. So Jesus wouldn't need that reminder. We get that. So whether he wore tassels or he didn't, I don't know. Maybe it was just that they reached out and touched the edge of his cloak. Whether he had tassels or he didn't, that's not the point. The point is that there appeared to be a number of people responding in faith as his healing power was pursued. We're looking at three stages as our Lord unleashes his incredible healing power so that his disciples will cultivate a greater faith in him. We've seen his healing power recognized. We've seen his healing power pursued in the third and final stage, which is the heart of this passage, his healing power unleashed. Look at the end of verse 56. After they brought all their sick so that they had access to Jesus, it says this. And as many as touched his cloak were being cured. Here, our Lord unleashes his healing power, putting his omniscience—excuse me, omnipotence—on display a third time. His power over physical disease and spiritual depravity would be exercised according to his will, and everyone that had a physical need would be healed. Everyone that touched him—that's what is confirming. Also, we cannot lose sight of the fact that there, there were those who were doing this as an expression of their faith. And they were reaching out spiritually as they recognized the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Just like the woman with the hemorrhage did. Interestingly, the last word in verse 56 translated cured can also be translated rescued, delivered, healed or saved. And it can mean one of two things. It can mean that you were rescued from physical danger. And this is the exact word that the Apostle Peter used in the account that we looked at last week in Matthew 14:30, when he was initially walking on the water, and then he got distracted and looked at the, the wind, and then he started to sink. And what did he yell out? You remember? Lord, save me, right? And the Lord saved him from the physical danger of drowning. It can also mean to be saved to divine salvation. And it's used in Matthew eighteen eleven, where Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And so this is just, One of those things is we're going to look at just the sufficiency of Scripture and how precise it is that the Lord, just even in the wording, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what gets recorded? In in, in a measure of common grace, it would cover all the physical miracles that were going to take place of everyone would come. And that word would also cover the saving grace that would be bestowed to everyone who turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And of course, the spiritual healings are the greater miracles. James Edwards shares this insight. The compassion of Jesus has fed, satisfied, and healed the crowds. But the blessings of his compassion raise the ultimate question, whether those who experience them will enter further into Jesus' saving purpose. The physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road, one branch of which leads to Jesus' final saving purpose, the other to a false understanding of Jesus as simply a wonder worker." End quote. And I think it's here at this point where we even see some of the dangerous effect of the, the, the prosperity gospel, the, the word of faith movement, right, that puts so much emphasis on your best life now, uh, a, a, a book that was a bestseller for a long time, right? And it, the emphasis is on healing and on financial wealth and security now, your best life now. The fork in the road gets even more defined when we consider our Lord's preaching and ministry as he faithfully preached the gospel of the kingdom, pointing people to himself as Messiah. And in time, the apostles would follow the Lord's footsteps, preaching the full New Testament gospel after the resurrection while performing miracles to authenticate their message as they established the foundation of the church And there's a bigger picture here that we cannot miss. They would need to be great men of faith. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is discipling them because he knows their apostolic calling, he knows what they're going to have to do. And they cannot be timid, they cannot have a micro faith, they have to have a mega faith. Last week's passage, which is really the middle passage of these three that we've studied in this series is, you know, it is like an Oreo cookie. The, the sweet filling was, it was in the center of that passage because it allowed us to see so much of the Lord's discipleship in their lives as he shepherded them, as he prayed for them, as he helped them, right? As he, as, as he showed up, as he calmed the storm, as he was aware of all their circumstances, as he's right in the middle of the, the, the presence, right, of it all, right? And I shared that they would need to keep him at the forefront. Their eyes would have to stay fixed on him, right? Because what happens if you don't? I shared even from my own personal experience, Christless days turn into crisis days, right? Before you know it, you'll be in crisis, you know, you know what, I didn't share this last week, and I want to share it this week because it's a great encouragement. Because when we, when you have those sweet, cherished days where your eyes are fixed on him throughout, you know what I call those? Those are priceless days. And we want, listen, listen, believer, from this point, we don't want crisis days. And I'm telling you, you don't have to have them. You don't have to have them. Let us have priceless days as our eyes are fixed on him as he is growing us as he is cultivating a mega faith so that we can have our lives as the little pebble the little stone of our lives which in your eyes might seem so insignificant but it's not i'm telling you as you're thrown into the waters that little pebble that gets thrown out and as it hits the water of life in ministry, the rippling effect that it can have is unbelievable. And your life can have that effect, but you have to answer that question: Do I want my life to count? Is it going to be one that's going to give God much glory? Is it going to have weight and substance to it? It's actually the Hebrew root kavod. It's 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 it's, it's weightiness to God's glory. It's, it's, it's weight and substance. Because the Bible does share that there are going to be things that are done for the Lord that are just simply going to be like wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble. And they'll be burned up. But the crowns, the substance, the metal, the weightiness, right, that, that, that comes with just being consumed with who Christ is, consumed with his glory. And I need this message. I, believe me, I wrestled with it all week. I, I need it preached to my own heart. Why? Because I am apathetic at times. Because I need to realize that this is one life, And that there are eternal consequences that come with it. And that we can bring his name glory as we walk in faithfulness, as we walk in obedience, as we walk in worship. All those things are synonymous, by the way. The Lord was discipling these men. And if there's one statement that our Lord makes that captures the big picture of his discipleship of of these 12 men, it was when he responded to Peter in Matthew 14 31. After Peter took his eyes off the Lord and began sinking, he said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why Why do I doubt? Why do you doubt? This response to Peter captures the essence of this entire sermon series called Battling Unbelief because the Lord knew the kind of faith that the apostles needed to have in order to accomplish what he was calling them to do. He knew what it would take. Little faith would not work. And they were going to be the ones who would unleash the Lord's healing power next. And the Lord discipled their unbelief and strengthened their faith all the way to the very end. In fact, right before he goes to the cross, in John 14, right, he lets them know it's a sobering start to that chapter. I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? Automatically their hearts, you know, at this time, they're, they're already broken because they realize that they're, gonna, they're, they're not going to be where he is. That, that alone is a, a principle we can, we can just capture would your heart be broken if you were not where he was? And he says something very profound in John fourteen twelve. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you," and this is in the context of his his twelve his, his disciples. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. If you have a MacArthur Study Bible, and you look down at the note at this verse, it says, Jesus did not mean greater works in power, but in extent. The apostles were going to perform many of the same miracles, right, that the Lord Jesus Christ did. They were going to raise the dead. They were going to heal the sick. They were going to cast out demons. And their greatest ministry, preaching the gospel of salvation The difference is that there would be 12 of them all simultaneously working together and to the extent now that they would be able to cover even more ground as the Lord was limited in in his humanity. And it's important to see the impact that they made when they unleashed the Lord's healing power. But turn with me to Acts chapter five. You need to see this firsthand because this was just like, as, as I connected it with this, our study today, so powerful. Acts chapter 5, and let's begin in verse 12. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico." But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And stop here just for a moment. I need to explain the context. The reason why Luke is recording this for us is because Ananias and Sapphira have just been killed in, at the beginning of this chapter for, for, for their sin. And so the people had some, some serious reservation. But it says that they, they held them and very high esteem. Verse 14, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that, e- that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. Sound familiar at all? Now listen to this. So that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Wow. Wow. And my heart was so encouraged as I considered the spiritual journey that that the apostle Peter made. How much he loved the Lord. And how much the Lord loved him and deeply invested in him. To think that Peter was the one who received those, those humbling words from our Lord. Why did you doubt? You of little faith to see him here in this instance, right? in the impact, right? It was when, after the denial, after the resurrection, there was something that took a hold of the peer, uh, Peter but by the power of the Holy Spirit that he, he, he was all out. He was, you know, pedal to the metal ministry-wise. Had it hammered the whole way home, right? He was making his life count. And the truth is that Peter wasn't the only one who had to grow. And each of the apostles had weaknesses that would, that would, would leave them clinging to the Lord's discipleship. And we have our own, don't we? We have our own. And the Lord, as, we, as he disciples us, he's, he's, he's helping us. He's, through the process of sanctification, he's helping us mortify those things, to kill those things. Our Lord's discipleship is what ultimately led them to be great men of faith as they followed and trusted their Savior. And now we're the ones who have the opportunity to unleash the Lord's healing power through the gospel. Now it is to us, right? Now it, 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 we've been given the opportunity and we have the ministry, and as it relates, and even as wild as it is to study and to think about the paralytics being healed and the woman with 12 years of the hemorrhage and um, the, the, the paralyzed man who never walked, to get up. All of those, you know, we can look at that, and I think even from the human level, we can consider those things, but do you know that God can use you to perform, right? Right, to be faithful so that he can execute even the greater miracle, Through the ministry of reconciliation, through the ministry of people who are, the world is filled with that broken relationship, no relationship with God, broken relationships in their marriages, in their families, in their workplaces. Filled, the world is is filled. And yeah, we may never have the opportunity to walk on water. And I don't think that our shadow is ever going to cause anyone to physically, miraculously be healed. But if we, we focus spiritually on the, the, the right things, right? If we, if we see the, 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 the ministry of re- reconciliation that has been entrusted to us as God has called us to be his ambassadors to, to preach that message of reconciliation, we have tremendous privilege. We have tremendous privilege. Well, before I close, I wanted to draw your attention down to the bottom of your sermon bulletin or the, the sermon outline in your bulletin. You'll see some sermon reflection questions. And these were questions that I reflected on in my study this week, and I thought they would bless you. And this is something that new that I wanted to try. It's actually a play out of... Uh, Vincent's playbook, uh, when he preached, he included some questions at the end, and again, this is just something that I thought would encourage you, and I hope that it does. That's a fitting way to close our message by reflecting on these questions. Number one, how might the people at Gennesaret recognizing Jesus as healer encourage you this week? What did it lead them to do? What might your recognition of Jesus as healer lead you to do? Number two, did all the people that pursued Jesus for healing seek spiritual healing? In what specific ways are you vulnerable to focusing more on physical healing rather than spiritual healing in your walk with the Lord? Number three, how did our Lord unleash his healing power? How did the apostles unleash the Lord's healing power? How can you unleash his healing power? J.C. Ryle closed with this. Let us see here a pattern for ourselves. Let us go and do likewise. Let us strive to bring all around us who are in need of spiritual medicine to Jesus, the great physician, that they may be healed Souls are dying every day. Time is short. Opportunities are rapidly passing away. The night comes when no man can work. Let us spare no pains in laboring to bring men and women to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they may be saved. It is a comforting thought that as many as touch him will be made whole. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads. United as a church family, thanking you for the the, the truths that you've impressed upon our hearts this day. We know that your word functions in many ways. As a mirror, there are no commands specifically in here for believers. But as we use your word as a mirror, there are principles of application. There is reflection that we can see. And we want our lives to count. We want to make them count. And yet your word has made it clear that in order for that to happen, that we need to be men and women of great faith, that we need to walk by faith. And Father, I pray for my own heart and you can see within the deep recesses of my own heart and the chambers of my heart, my struggles, and you see that for every single person that can hear the sound of my voice. I pray, Father, that you would help us to kill our unbelief, kill the areas of doubt, remove the short-sightedness, and in some instances, the blindness to the things that we get caught up in the things of the world that blind us. Help us to be consumed with Christ. Help us to be consumed with the message of the gospel. Help us to be consumed with your word that gives us clear direction and how we can bring you the most glory as we submit to your commands. Help us to embrace your will for our lives. I Thank you for this church family. Thank you for giving additional time just to preach and cover messages at length for the gracious receptivity on the part of your people. We celebrate you, Father, and we pray that you'll bless the remainder of our morning as we even consider the reflection questions and have time later this week. Would you expose the areas where you want us to grow? And would we not be resistant? Would we not be apathetic? Would we embrace you? Would we receive the challenge that your word has directly for our hearts? And would your Holy Spirit convict us of both sin and righteousness? We give you thanks for this time. We ask you to bless the remainder of our morning, including our second hour. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.